Chapter Eight of Journeys to Baghdad. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rachel Marie. Journeys to Baghdad by Charles S. Brooks. Chapter Eight. Hoop skirts and other lively matters. Several months ago, I had occasion to go through a deserted mansion. It was a gaunt building with long windows, and it sat in a great yard. Over the windows were painted scrolls, like eyebrows lifted in astonishment. Whatever was the cause of this, it has long since departed, for it is thirty years since the building was tenanted. It would seem as if it fell asleep, for so the blinds and the drawn curtains can attest, before the lines of this first astonishment were off its face. I am told that the faces of dead men in battle show in similar fashion the marks of conflict, but there is a shocked expression on the face of this house as if a scandal were on the street. It is crying, as it were, fie shame upon its neighbours. Inside there are old carpets and curtains which spit dust at you if you touch them. Is there not some fabulous animal which does the same, thereby to escape in the murk it has itself created? Most of the furniture has been removed. But here and there bulky pieces remain, an antique sideboard, maybe too large to be taken away, like Robinson Crusoe's boat, too heavy to be launched, and each room is a chandelier for gas, resplendent as though Louis the Fifteenth had come again to life, with tinkling glass pendants and globules interlinked like enormous cuminers. Down in the kitchen, which is below stairs as in an old English comedy, you can see the place where the range stood and there are smoky streaks upon the walls that may have come from the coals of ancient feasts. If you sniff and put your fancy in it, it is an unsavoury thought. It is likely even that you can get the stale smell from such hospitable preparation. From the first floor to the second is a flaring staircase with a landing where opulence can get its breath, and then there is a choice of upward steps, either to the right or left as your wish shall direct and on each side is a balustrade unbroken by posts from top to bottom. Now the first excitement of my own life was on such a rail, which seemed a funicular made for my special benefit. The seats of all my early breeches, I have been told, were worn shiny thereon, like a rubbed apple. These descents were executed slowly at the turn, but gathered wild speed on the straightaway. There was slight need for Annie to dust the balusters. An old house is strong in its class distinctions. There is a front part and a back part. To know the front part is to know it in its spacious and generous moods. But somewhere you will find a door, and there will be three steps behind it, and poof, you will be prying into the darker life of the place. In this particular house of which I write, it was as if the back rooms, the back halls, and the innumerable closets had been playing at hide-and-seek and had not been told when the game was over, and so still kept to their hiding-places. It is in such obscure closets that a family skeleton, if it be kept at all, might be kept most safely. There would be slight hazard of its discovery if the skeleton restrained itself from clanking, as is the whim of skeletons. It was in the back part of this house that I came on a closet where, after all these years, women's garments were still hanging. A lighted match, for I am no burglar with a bull's eye, as you might suspect, displayed to me an array of petticoats the flounced kind that gladdened the eye of women in those remote days. Also certain gauzy matters, which the writers of the eighteenth century called by the name of smocks. Besides these, there were suspended from hooks these sartorial deceits, those lying mounds of fashion, 
that false incrustation on the surface of nature known as bustles. Also there was a hoop-skirt curled upon the floor, and an open barrel with a stowage of books, a novel or two of E.P. Rowe, the poems of John Sachs, a table copy of Whittier in padded leather, an album with a flourish on the cover, these at the top of the heap. I choose to trace the connection between the styles of dress and books, and, where my knowledge serves, to show the effect of political change on both, for it is written that when Constantinople fell in the fifteenth century, Turkish costumes became the fashion through Western Europe, maybe a flash of Eastern colour across the shoulders or an Oriental buckle for the shoes. Similarly, the Balkan War gave us hints for dress. Many styles today are marks of our kinship with the East. These are mere broken promptings for your own elaboration, and it seems to sort with this theory of close relation with the generation which flared and flounced its person until nature was no more than a kernel in the midst, which puffed itself like a muffin with but a finger-point of dough within, should be the generation that particularly delighted in romantic literature, in which likewise nature is so prudently wrapped that scarce an ankle can show itself. It would be a nice inquiry whether the hoop-skirt was not introduced—it was midway in the eighteenth century, I think—at the time of the first budding of romantic sentiment. The man of feeling came after in Anne Radcliffe's novels. Is it not significant also, in these present days of Russian novels and naked realism, that costume should advance sympathetically to the edge of modesty? There is something, however, to be said in favour of romantic books despite the horrible examples at the top of this barrel. Perhaps our own literature shivers in too thin a shift. For once upon a time, somewhere between the age of bustles and ourselves, there were writers who ended their stories, and they were married and lived happily ever after. Whereas at this present day, stories are begun, they were married, and straight away things began to go to the devil. And for my own part, I have read enough of family quarrels. I am tired of the tune upon the triangle, and I am ready for softer flutings. When I visit my neighbours, I want them to make a decent pretense. It was Charles Lamb who found his married friends too loving in his presence, but let us not go to extremes. And so, after I have read a few books of marital complication, I yearn for the old-fashioned couple in the older books who went hand in hand to old age. At this minute there is a black book that looks down upon me like a crow. It is Crime and Punishment. I read it once when I was ill, and I nearly died of it. I confess that after a very little acquaintance with such books, I am tempted to sequester them on a top shelf somewhere, beyond reach of tiptoe, where they may brood upon their banishment and rail against the world. Encyclopedias and the tonnage of learning properly take their place on the lowest shelves, for their lump and mass make a fitting foundation. I must say, however, that the habit of the dictionary of secreting itself in the darkest corner of the lowest shelf contributes to general illiteracy. I have known families wrangle for ten minutes on the meaning of a word rather than lift this laggard from its depths. Be that as it may, the novels and poetry should be on the fifth shelf from the bottom, just off the end of the nose, so to speak. Now, the vinegar cruet is never the largest vessel in the house. So by strict analogy, sour books, the kind that bite the temper and snarl upon your better moods, should be in a small minority. Do not mistake me. I shall find a place, maybe, for a volume or two of Nietzsche, and all of Ibsen, surely. I would admit uplift, too, for my taste is Catholic. And there will be other books of a kind that never rouse a chuckle in you. 
for these are necessary if for no more than as alarm clocks to awake us from our dreaming self-content but in the main i would not have books too insistent upon the wrongs of the world and the impossibility of remedy i confess to a liking for tales of adventure for wrecks in the south seas for treasure islands for pirates with red shirts mark you how a red shirt lights up a dull page it is like a scarlet leaf on a grey november day also i have a weakness for the bang of pistols round oaths and other desperate rascality in such stories there is no small mincing a villain proclaims himself upon his first appearance unless john silver be an exception and retains his villainy until the rope tightens about his neck in the last chapter but one the very last being set aside for the softer commerce of the hero and heroine you will remember that about twenty years ago a fine crop of such stories came out of the balkans at that time it was a dim unknown land a kind of novelist's coast of bohemia an appropriate setting for distressed princesses i'll hazard a guess that there was not a peak in all that district on which there was not some black rudolph's castle not a road that did not clack romantically with horses hooves on bold adventure but the wars have changed all this by bringing too sharp a light upon the dim scenery of this pageantry and swashbucklery is all but dead to confess the truth it is in such stories that i like horses best in real life i do not really like them at all i am rather afraid of them as of strange organisms that i can neither start with ease nor stop with safety it is not that i never really drove a horse i have achieved both but i don't urge him to deviltry instead i humour his whims some horses even i might be fond of give me a horse that nears the edge of slippered pantaloon and is moreover phlegmatic in his tastes and then as the stories say with tightened girth and feet well home but enough i must not be led into boasting but in these older stories i love a horse with what fire do his hoofs ring out in the flight of elopement pursuits at the turn speed my brave dobbin and when the prince has kissed the princess's hand you know that the story is nearly over and that they will live happily ever after of course there is always someone to suggest that cinderella was never happy after she left her ashes and pumpkins and went to live in the palace but this is idle gossip even if there were occasional bickerings between her and the prince this is as lamb says it should be among near relations i nearly died of crime and punishment these russian novelists have too distressful a point of view they remind me too painfully of the poem it was dreadful dark in that doleful ark when the elephants went to bed doubtless if the light burn high in you it is well to read such gloom as theirs perhaps they depict life these things may be true and if so we ought to know them at the best theirs is a real attempt to cleanse the foul body of the infected world but if there be a blast without and driving rain must we always be running to the door to get it in our faces will not one glance in the evening be enough shall we always be exposing ourselves to feel what wretches feel it is true that we are too content under the suffering of others but it is true also that too few of us were born under a laughing star grey shadows fall too often on our minds a sunny road is the best to travel by furthermore and here is a deep platitude there is many a man who sobs upon a doleful book who to the end of time will blithely underpay his factory girls his grief upon the book is diffuse 
It ranges across the mountains of the world, but misses the nicer point of his own conduct. Is this not sentimentally like the grey yarn hysteria under the spell of which wealthy women clicked their needles in public places for the soldiers? Let me not underrate the number of garments that they made. Surely a single machine might produce as many within a week. But there is danger that their work was only a sentimental expression of their world grief. I'll sink to depths of practicality and claim that a pittance from their allowances would have brought more and better garments in the market. Perhaps we read too many tragical books. In the Decalogue, the inheritance of evil is too strongly visited on the children to the third and fourth generation, and there is scant sanction as to the inheritance of goodness. It is the sins of the father that live in the children, it is the evil that men do that lives after them, while the good, alas, is oft interred with their bones. Yet if a doleful book stirs you up to life, for God's sake read it. If it wraps you all about as in the winding sheet for death, you had best have none of it. I had now burned several matches, and my fingers too, in the inspection of the closet where the women's garments hung, and it came on me as I poked the books with a barrel and saw what silly books were there, that perhaps I have overstated my position. It would be a lighter doom, I thought, to be rived and shriveled by the lightning flash of a modern book, even crime and punishment, than stultified by such as were within. Then, like the lady of the poem, having sat me down upon a mound to think on life, I concluded that my views were sound, and got me up and turned me round, and went me home again. End of chapter 8